0: John 1, it's, it is at one and the same time the most fan, fantastic, it's not really a word we use much with the Bible, but fantastic passage of, Bi- of the Bible. It is so in-depth, so complex, so carefully structured, and yet it's just so simple at face value as well. And the truths, there are truths that as you look at it, just jump straight out at you, and there's others that you have to dig into. And the thing really I want us to just, before we kind of focus on the text, just understand about it in the flow of John, is that... John's gospel has its roots here in the prologue, that everything that John wants to tell you in his gospel is found here in seed form in the first 18 verses that every theme that John later develops whether he's talking about light and darkness whether he's talking about glory whether he's talking about salvation whether he's talking um, about any of these things that they all find their, their genesis as it were in these first 18 verses and yet these first 18 verses find their genesis and their seed in the Old Testament that John of all the gospels has the least direct quotations Uh, from the Old Testament, and yet you could argue it has the richest connection to the Old Testament, because there's so much in it that is grounded in the Old Testament in a more subtle and understated way. So with that said, let's just dig straight in. When we come to John 1, um, of course the first verse is astonishingly famous and rightly so. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now obviously at this point we're not dealing with the, the Holy Spirit per se, but, but the relationship between the Father and the Son within the, 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 the triune Godhead is seen clearly here. That what we have in the beginning is we have a pre-existent God. That God is here in the beginning, and the Word is here as well we'll talk more about that in a moment but I want us to notice this that the word was with God and so there is a distinction between the word and God and yet at the same time the word was God and there is that connection and so that's what we have when we come here we have the distinction between the father and the son and yet we have the oneness of the father and the son as well. The Jehovah's Witnesses will try and tell you that that the word was a God. That's what their New World Translation says. And then other people, in trying to rectify and correct that, will say, no, 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 the the word was the God, which is a heresy of a different kind and a different flavor. Um, And though it is uh, perhaps a little complex to explain, the, the basic gist of what is being communicated here in the Greek is this. That everything that God is, the Word is. Everything that makes God, God, the Word has as well. There's nothing that, that is in the Father that is not in the Son. And that's going to be an introduction to one of the main themes of this prologue as we go through. And by the way, I'm not going to be exegeting all 18 verses, because... Um, that is too big a task. So we're not going to see it every way in which that happens. I want to just glance at various things. Just, just as an aside, by the way, um, once at, um, when I was teaching at a Bible college, I did a 14-week class on John's Gospel. I had to summarize the entire book into 14 weeks, which was a bit of a challenge. And uh, I did ask for permission, which wasn't granted, to do a class uh, of 14 weeks the following semester just on the prologue. I figured I could I could figure get 14 weeks' worth of two hours of lectures a week. I could get 14 weeks' worth, 28 hours' worth in just these 18 verses. That's how deep it is, and that's how much there is here. But what, what I want you to see is that this idea that what God is, the Word is, the things that make God God, that that makes the word God too that's what's being communicated in verse 1 and that's what then follows what John draws out through the remainder of this prologue now if we go from verse 1 and we jump to the very end we're going to see that the deity of Jesus Christ which is so clearly stated in verse 1 is also clearly stated in verse 18 um, if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, it won't be clear for you here, unfortunately. Um, the King James onlyists often say, oh, the deity of Christ has been omitted elsewhere in these other versions. Well, this is the one, one of the verses where the deity of Christ is, is omitted from the King James Version. It's not as clear there. Um, but verse 18 says this, No one has seen God at any time, The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So this is one of those expressions. I remember hearing this as a kid every Christmas, it being read out, and and never really getting it. Just just always being confused by what the verse meant. So let me just, you know, and, and I know there are many who struggle, you know, I struggled with it many years after my salvation as well. So I'll take it step by step and walk you through it so you fully understand it. It starts off with, no one has seen God at any time. Now, what we have in verse 1 and verse 18 is we have these bookends. We have this inclusio that holds the prologue together. The deity of Christ in verse 1 and the deity of Christ in verse 18. So, the elements of verse 1 are here in verse 18 as well. In that the word is distinct from the Father, distinct from God, and yet the word is God. Okay. So, in the first portion here it says... That no one has seen God at any time. And that is clearly speaking of the Father. The distinction between the Father and the Son in verse 1 is here in verse 18 as well. Because obviously people have seen Jesus. Okay, So no one is seeing God at any time. Now, I can't just brush this aside. I have to mention this. But isn't that fascinating for how we look at the Old Testament? When God manifests himself in the Old Testament, he is seen. And yet no one has seen him at any time. At any time. It specifically says that. It doesn't say recently. It doesn't say in the last few hundred years. It doesn't say since you were really naughty and Ezekiel told you that I left the temple. It doesn't say that at all. It says at any time. Nobody has seen God at any time. There is something something definitive here. Why? Because when God manifests himself, even in the Old Testament, that what we're seeing is a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, and not of the Father. The Father is spirit, and he isn't seen physically. And so no one is seeing God at any time. And then he says this, The only begotten God, that's the old expression, other versions will say the one and only um, the ESV says the only God. The idea is not one of uh, of, of, the, of the phrase "only begotten" is one of uniqueness. That there is a uniqueness. We we see the, only, the expression "the only begotten Son." For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Right. The idea of that is not begotten in the sense of He was created, but begotten in the sense of uniqueness. That this is the one who is unique, because we know that God has other sons. Right? Israel's called a son of God in various passages. We see in the middle of this passage that we are given the right to be called sons of God. So he clearly has, he, he clearly in different contexts has more than one son. But there is the son that is unique. The son that is unlike any other. The only begotten son. So here when it says the only begotten God... What it's saying is, there is, a God, there is a unique God. There is a God here who is unique. So we have the Father, and the Father is distinct from the Word. And no one's ever seen him. But there is this unique one, who is God, and yet distinct from God. And he is unique in that he is unlike what we might expect. In what way, I hear you ask? In the sense that no one has ever seen the Father. But in a very distinct way, this one, who is specifically again called God, he has explained him, or he has made him known. He has shown him, he has revealed him. The idea is this, is if you can't see the Father, how do you know him? You look at Jesus. Why? Why? Because though he's distinct from the Father, everything that makes the Father God makes the Son God. Do you understand that? So Jesus here is in verses 1 and in verse 18 is fully God, yet distinct from the Father, and the dis- distinction and uniqueness of the Son means that he is able to reveal the fullness of God so that we can see God in a way that we could never see him before. That's the majesty of the incarnation. That Christ allows God to be seen as he was never seen before. And that really is predominantly the theme of this prologue. We see in verse 3... That Jesus is the one who created everything. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Literally everything that has ever been created was created by Jesus. Yes, that includes wasps. And yes, that includes Satan. And for some of you, that's probably very close to being the same thing. But yes, there is a purpose even in those things. That God will use all things for his glory ultimately in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it the theme about the light of the world is which is so rich in John's gospel is taken up here we have a reference to John the Baptist next in verse 6 he is not the light but he's come to bear witness about it We see John the Baptist again at uh, verse 15. And again, the same message is given, essentially. This was him of whom I said, he who comes after me has been ahead of me because he existed before me. That John is essentially saying, don't look at me, look at him. Now, we could go into this in huge detail, but at the very least, I hope you see this, at the very end of the book... We have the deity of the the prologue, rather. We have the deity of Christ. At the beginning of the prologue, we have the deity of Christ. When we go in somewhat, we have Christ bringing into the world. Everything that was created comes in through him. In verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Christ bringing and creating is the next layer in, and as we go further in, we have John the Baptist. We have John the Baptist coming from the beginning, and John the Baptist coming from the end. We have this sort of layering going in, and it's really quite intense, and it's really quite, there's a lot of detail to it, but I really want to draw your attention to what is at the center of this layering that we see in John's gospel, because when we go in a little closer come to verse say 13 born not of the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of god then we see uh, equally he was in the world the world verse 10 was made through him the world did not know him we have the people who were his own who didn't receive him and we have those who do receive him or born not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. So right here in the center, we have Jesus coming into the world, the world not knowing him unless he gives them that opportunity, unless it comes from the will of God. And right in the center of John's prologue is verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, many English versions mix the order up here. The ESV, for example, says this. It says, To all who did receive him who believed in his name, he he gave the right to become children of God. But the Greek is quite emphatic. It says it this way. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. And so the layering goes in even to within the center verse. At the beginning of verse 12, many has received him. At the end of verse 12, those who believed upon his name. Who are the ones who receive him? They're the ones who believe in his name. It's the same thing. And this is crucial, because this is right at the heart of the prologue. This is the centerpiece. All of this layering focuses focuses us on the middle. And if we believe in him, then we receive him. Now, this is very, very important. In many Christian circles today, they will say, well, believing him and receiving him are essentially the same thing. On that we agree. So, if you believe in Jesus you've received him. The danger of that is that we then are saying, if someone says, well, I believe that Jesus existed. I believe he may have even died on the cross. He may, he may have even been God. I kind of, I believe these things. Well, the demons believe, and they shudder. And the danger is, is that so many in the Western world, in particular, over the last generation or so have equated some form of belief with a receiving of Jesus I think in light of what John then tells us we spoke about this a few weeks ago when we were dealing with with a a similar situation in the book of Daniel we turned to John 2 saw Nicodemus and how Nicodemus believed he had some kind of faith but Jesus said to him you need to be born again your, your faith is an insufficient faith. It's not a saving faith. And so I think it's better for us to look at it the other way around. For us to truly believe in Jesus, we have to receive him. In other words, define the believing by the receiving. Don't define the receiving by the believing. What it's saying is, for you to believe in Jesus means to have received him. And it is only to those who have believed and received that he has given the right to become children of God. And right here in the center of the prologue is us being reconciled with God and us through the unique son, the only begotten son, being called sons. Us being embraced as part of God's family, us who are enemies being reconciled, and how does that come about? It comes about through the receiving of Jesus Christ. Let's turn, if you would, with me away from uh, away from uh, John's Gospel, and let's turn to Luke. Luke chapter 2. I'm reading from verse 21. When eight days were fulfilled, so they could circumcise him, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the days for their cleansing, according to the law of Moses, were fulfilled, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All of that introduction simply to say that... um, There were requirements under the law regarding the circumcision on the eighth day regarding the period of cleansing before he could then be presented. And because he was the firstborn, and there is this principle of of the firstfruits, that he was set apart as holy to God in a way that other children weren't. And there's a sacrifice that had to be made in verse 24. What is interesting about the quoting here, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, is that there was actually a different offering. That was supposed to be made at the presentation of your firstborn son. But this offering was the alternative for families that couldn't afford the main offering. That shows you where the family was at. And behold, there was in Jerusalem, who, uh, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. I am open to tell you I am fascinated by Simeon and Anna in in this chapter of Luke. They're just incredible characters. Simeon has been waiting for the comfort of Israel. Anybody who wants to uh, spiritualize away the prophecies to Israel in the Old Testament, here's a New Testament verse that you really have to wrestle with. He's waiting for the comfort to come to the people of Israel as have been prophesied. And the Spirit of God is upon him. Remember, although we're reading in the New Testament, we're essentially in Old Testament times. Christ hasn't yet died. The Old Covenant hasn't yet come to an end. And certainly the Holy Spirit hasn't been poured out at Pentecost yet. And so Simeon is a very, very rare individual Who has the Holy Spirit? There's no indication that the Holy Spirit was given to anyone in Israel after the last prophets, which is a period of hundreds of years. And yet, this man has some sort of prophetic gifting. The Holy Spirit's upon him, and he's been told that he will not see death until he's seen the Lord's Christ, or to put it another way, Yahweh's Messiah, the Father's Word. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said. And so the Holy Spirit who had promised him that he would see the Messiah in his lifetime, here he is an old man at the end of his life. One thing I always like to teach those who are in the latter stages of life, I say it a lot actually, Um, I guess I'm reminding myself as I get older as well, that if you're still here, and if you're still breathing, then he still has a purpose for you. It's as simple as that. It really is as simple as that. And uh, we have this bizarre thing, don't we, in our, I was talking to someone about this the other day, this bizarre thing in our society, where we kind of think, well, let's have fun when we're young and not take life too seriously. And then we spend most of our lives regretting that. And, uh, and then at the end of our lives, we come to this point where we say, okay, we've done our work, now we'll just rest. And it's like, well, hold on a second. Rest is what happens when we die. Rest, rest is when we go to be with Jesus and there's no more struggle. There's no more sin. There's no more fighting with our, with our fleshly nature. It's, it's, it's a time of true rest that comes after this life. And really, I think the latter years of our life are probably, you know, particularly if we've wasted our youth, because it is true what they say, isn't it? That, that uh, youth is wasted on the young. Um, and uh, that, I'll tell you that I never understood that when I was younger. Every year that goes by, I understand that better. <laughs> youth is wasted on the young. Um, and particularly if we've wasted much of our life, we come and we, as we get older, and it's kind of the equivalent of somebody cramming before an exam that hasn't done the revision that they needed to do. You know, you've got a big, you've got a big exam coming up, a big test coming up, and uh, you're like, man, I wish I'd studied more four weeks ago, but, but I can't do it now because I, four, I can't turn back the clock. The four weeks have gone, and, and the exam's tomorrow. I'm just going to have to do everything I can now. Before the the exam begins and it's too late. The day is coming, and we don't know when it will be. We don't know how it will happen. But the day is coming when we're going to stand before him and see him face to face. And every deed that we have done, even with questionable motive, every good deed we've done will be purified and will be rewarded for it. But the time is running out to gather those rewards every one of us however old we are each day we have one day less and so I don't look at retirement as a time to put feet up and do nothing I see it as a chance to say what do you have left for me Jesus okay I I can't move as well as I used to so I can't do that but what do you have left for me I can't, I can't do, be as active as I used to be. But what do you have left for me? And as long as there's a breath in our lungs and as long as there's a word in our mouth, we continue to serve him, trying to grab each and every reward that is available, every opportunity to serve him before those opportunities run out. I look back when I was younger and I just think, did I not realize the opportunities I had? The time that I had, the things I was able to do that I could have done. The, you know, it, 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 when you're young, life just seems like so long. And old people are really old. And, and it just seems so far away and distant. And so you don't worry about things too much. And, and the older I get, the more I realize, man, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd taken more care over this and that. And I feel like as I get older, I'm cramming more and more, like that student with the exam coming up. Well, Simeon was very old, and God says, "You won't die until this happens." <laughs> it's kind of a scary situation to be in, because he kind of, after this experience, went home, and it's like, "Well, any time now, then." It's like a, it's a blessing and a curse, isn't it, really? Well, like, I can't get run down by the bus tomorrow, can I? Because I haven't seen the Messiah yet. And then you see the Messiah. It's like, okay, well, anytime time now. Kind of a bizarre situation. But anyway, joke, joking aside, he's an old man. He gets to see the Messiah. He knows he's going to. And on this particular day, he's led into the temple. And the young and the old meet. This... Incredibly old man meets this incredibly young child. My, I loved my grandfather. He was such a special man in my life. And when my firstborn son was born, my grandfather was kind of very much at the end of his life. And he, he would have been at a similar stage of life as perhaps Simeon was. And my, my eldest boy, Tim would have been about the same age that Jesus was here. And we have one photo of him holding his great-grandson before he passed. And that's the kind of situation that comes. And so they come in. Simeon, by the Spirit, is there at that day, and he takes Jesus in his arms. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But he says this, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. In other words, I know I can go now because you've done what you said. And I love the phrase in peace. There is something that has been accomplished in taking up this young child that it brings peace to him in a very real way. And he tells us why. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all people's a light see what we saw in John there again for revelation to the gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel his mother and father were marveling at the things that were being said about him Simeon knows who it is that he's seeing he's been waiting for the messiah if you're told by the holy spirit you will see the messiah before you die what What part of the Bible do you think you're going to be most interested in? What topic do you think you'll be studying the most? What verses do you think you'll be memorizing most? This guy is going to be studying anything and everything about the coming Messiah. He's going to be memorizing verses. He's going to be going to the temple, asking the rabbis, asking about the Messiah, learning all he can. And we know he's a devout man. It says that specifically. He's a believer. He's waiting for the Messiah to come, and he has been for a while. So he probably knew a lot about the Messiah beforehand, but certainly he would have done. And when he looks at Jesus, just a babe, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He uses the two words that we saw in John, light and glory. He knows that these three key elements that John focused in on, salvation, light and glory, are the things that associate the Messiah what I want to end with today is this. What Simeon does, and I don't know if the connections, the, sometimes it's hard to discern echoes. Sometimes with the, with, the, uh, with the New Testament, it's hard to know exactly which book was, was written first. But we're pretty sure Luke came before John. And, you know, I don't think there probably were any echoes here. It's just they're talking about the same things, so the same things come up. But it's fascinating that in John we have salvation, light, and glory. Here in Luke 2 we have salvation, light, and glory. And there at the center of John's gospel, where we have light and glory in the outer layers, there in the middle is his salvation. All who believe, all who've received him, he gives the right to become children of God. And here is this unique one, this unique son, who's being held by this man, who who believes and who has received He knows that in seeing the sun, that he can go at any time. The implication of a text is that it's going to be imminent now. Maybe he went home that evening, rested his eyes, and never opened them again. He says, your servant can now go in peace. There is a sense in which he took the sun, and he took the sun knowing that that meant that his death was going to come. And yet he received him and he received peace. What he does is he takes the child in his arms. And he takes everything that that child is and represents and everything that he brings. And that, I think, is one of the best explanations, visually as it were, of what we have to do to believe and receive in Jesus. You don't just say, I intellectually agree that there was a person called Jesus. You don't just say, oh yeah, I grew up in the church and I know all these Bible stories. Of course there was a Jesus, I believe in a Jesus. You don't just get to look at Jesus from afar and say, yeah, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that. That there is a sense in which you receive him and you take him up in your arms there's a sense in which you say here is this one that will ultimately bring about death deny yourself take up your cross and follow me and I will receive him and all that comes with him I will follow him and go where he has gone I will associate myself with him and all that comes with him and there are doctrines that I might find offensive there are behaviours I may have to stop there are things I may have to do that I don't want to do things I may have to change that I don't want to change there may be things that are very offensive to me and there may be things that I just simply don't understand but those of us who by the will of God believe and receive him, we can do nothing but say, I was made to receive this one. And so we take him and we hold him. With all of our uncertainties, with all of our doubts, with all of our fears all of our frustrations and we receive him. If this takes me to Gethsemane, I receive you. If this takes me to Calvary, I receive you. If this doesn't resolve my questions, I receive you. If this means I have to make changes, I receive you. If this means I have to change, I receive you. If this means that I have to live this way, I receive you. I receive you because I believe in you. You are God's Messiah. That's what it means to receive Jesus. And the irony of this Christmas season in this country, not America uniquely, the same is exactly true in my country, my home nation as well, The irony is this, that it's the time of year that millions and millions and millions of people believe in Jesus. Oh, sure, there's the Santa crew who, who, who only talk about Santa, who just want to keep Jesus out of the equation completely. They don't like him, they don't believe in him. But at Christmas, what becomes very clear is that there are many, 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 many people who believe in Jesus in some way shape or form and the message for them at Christmas more often than not is you must be born again you have to receive him you have to embrace him for all he is because let's be frank so many people are happy to receive a Jesus who is born To a teenage mother, when they when they are have no place to stay, and there he is in the swaddling cloths and in the manger, and all these elements of the Christmas story. Oh, we like a bit of nativity scene. We'll have a bit of that. Angels come. Oh, we like that. Yeah, we'll have that. But then when Jesus starts saying. Things about leaving behind your sin. When Jesus starts talking about how you must deny your own family to follow him. When Jesus says that if you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. When Jesus starts saying these things, people struggle. We see that in John's gospel. Jesus says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And people say, well, this is weird. We, 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 we don't like these things. This is weird. We don't want to, we don't want to hang around. We, we only came for the miracles. Here he was. He was, he was, he was multiplying fish and bread, and we like that kind of stuff. But this is just weird. And so they stopped following him because he said things that were difficult and strange. And Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, what about you? Are you going to leave as well? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. What had Peter done? He'd received him. He didn't understand at that point any more than the people who walked away. But he'd received him. He'd taken him and he'd held him. And he'd received him. If we truly want to believe and trust with a saving faith and a saving trust, we have to receive Jesus as he is. In the world today, people are desperate to change Jesus to fit them. We'll have the Jesus, baby Jesus. That's cool. We're right with baby Jesus. We don't like the Jesus who turns over the tables in the temple. Unless that's a statement against churches, because we're all right with that. We don't like the Jesus who says difficult things. And so people adjust Jesus to fit in. You've heard people say the expression, Well, you know, we like Jesus, but we really don't like that Paul guy. The problem you've got is that Paul understood Jesus far better than you clearly did. And you've actually rejected Jesus. You just recreated him in your own image. Receiving Jesus doesn't mean changing him so that we can receive him, it means us being changed by the receiving of him. And so, on this Boxing Day, so named because of the gifts and given. In boxes. Let's make sure that we use any opportunities that God might providentially grant us as we speak about Jesus, as we speak about our faith, to loved ones, to families, to friends, to people in stores or what have you, that we just have an opportunity to talk about believing in Jesus and receiving Him. Receiving Him as He is, as he's presented in scripture, not receiving portions of him that are palatable, but embracing the whole and trusting and believing that God will open the eyes of those he's chosen and called. Because when they are born again, they will be born by the will of God. And nothing can stop his will. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this Christmas that we might see salvation we might see people believing and receiving and becoming your children convict those Lord we pray whether you use us or some other means but convict those who have some form of belief but have never received you never received Christ with all that he brings never received him with his statements that are troubling with his doctrines that we may not want to agree with with his demands on our lives when we don't want to change Convict those people, Lord, that their faith is not saving faith. And open their eyes and bring them to a place where they might, like Simeon, find peace in the receiving of the Son. Amen. Mm